Any of you country music fans? It's okay, it's a safe place. That's good. Uh, that was a Lady A song. It has kind of a crossover tune. Uh, Jennifer found it uh, this week and uh, looked at the video. She kind of pulled the band, hey, what do you think? And watched the video, and, and where it says Jesus on the slide, even though we had it a little bit wrong, uh, is baby. And so you think, oh, this is a love song or something. Uh, but the more you look at it, um, the more you realize that this song, and you watch the video, the song's not about baby, like your loved one at home. Every scene of this is about doing the work of Jesus. It's about taking care of the poor. It's about coming alongside somebody who's broken or in need. That's, that's what the song is about. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, so anyway, thank you for doing that, Jennifer. And your bulletin, you have the passes that we're looking at. We've been uh, spending four weeks. This is the fourth and final week on these six verses. Can I get an amen the fourth week? All right. He wondered, how are we going to get four weeks out of this small passage? And we've got one more, and uh, then we're done with it. Next week, we'll do something kind of a, uh, it's a lone thing, a uh, standalone thing. And then we're going to jump into a series that's going to take us through Christmas. Uh, we're going to hit some deep weeds and some fun, provocative ways. Uh, it be a theological stretcher uh, for you as we talk about the concept of incarnation. And what exactly is that? How do we understand that theologically? Obviously, we're used to thinking about that in the context of Jesus. But if that's a God thing happening, is it bigger than just Jesus? And you're going to find out that, yes, it is. So I'm going to have a, a special guest, at least with us on video, that I'm going to be uh, bringing in. And maybe I'll even have him come speak. Uh, a friend of mine uh, is just brilliant. Uh, so maybe we'll do that. Um, we'll find out, but it will be interesting, uh, thought-provoking. I promise not to ruin Christmas, so <laughs> I know I've done that in the past. I'm not going to do that this year, uh, so it should be good. And then uh, in January, we've got a series uh, on open and relational theology based on a new book by Tom Ord, who uh, runs um, this broad umbrella called Open and Relational Theology. And he will actually be with us here as uh, a world-renowned author at the end of uh, January for some Q&A and some uh, sparring, which will be fun, and then the cool stuff after that. So we've got some good stuff planned for you, and uh, hopefully today uh, will be good too. So let's just check this out. I'll just uh, stop a couple moments as we take a look at this text on the front of your bulletin. So they came to Jericho, and the they we're talking about is Jesus and the disciples. They're coming from the northern part of Israel and Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry, and they're making their way south, cruising through Jericho for a minute, and before they head to Jerusalem. This is the last trip that they're going to make, that Jesus is going to make through Jericho, because it's the last trip he's going to make to Jerusalem, because he's going, and he knows what's going to happen to him. He's going to die. He knows that. He's been trying to tell the disciples that. They can't understand what the heck that means. Uh, so they're just going along with the guy that they're, they're following the whole time. But that's the they who came to Jericho. He stayed there for some unknown amount of time. And as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, so now he's on his way to Jerusalem, uh, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And does anybody remember? Um, there's a word that I uh, told you could very appropriately be on the end of that sentence. Anybody remember that word? Now, now that's right. So the, the Greek aorist tense suggests that when he's saying this, he's not saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. At some point, maybe a nice Christmas gift. He's saying, Jesus, have mercy on me right now. And it's sort of this audacious thing for Bart to do. 
And the reason it was audacious is uh, amplified by what happens in the next verse. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet. This was the normal crowd reaction to Bart. Even in this current age, uh, research has been done, I shared this with you a couple weeks ago, uh, that among the blind uh, globally, uh, they are still, even in all of our wisdom and knowledge today, three things happen uh, collectively to those who struggle with blindness to this day. Uh, the first thing is they're treated like they're dumb uh, because they assume that you, because they bonk around, because they can't see, because they don't have access to education, whatever the case may be, uh, th that is assumed that they are dumb. And the second thing that is communicated to the blind to this day globally is that they are a burden on society. They're made to know that and feel that. And the third thing that happens to this day globally is that the community at large, the culture at large, lets the blind people know that they, are, they surely must be cursed by God. And that's why they're blind. It seems kind of unthinkable uh, that in our age we would do this, but we do. And not only to blind people, but to other people. And there's a, there's a word for what this is. It's a dehumanization of persons. Because when we can dehumanize people and have a reason to dehumanize them, then we don't have to treat them humanely. And this happens in lots of different categories of people, usually people who are more vulnerable than others all the time. But today we're talking about Bart. And so that's why it's astonishing that he had enough courage to yell out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So the crowd sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me now. And Jesus stood still. Now, I just want, I pointed this out last week, but I just want to point it out again. This is remarkable. The crowd is going in one direction. The easy thing to do would be to go along with the crowd, to not hear Bart, not give attention to Bart, even if you did hear him, because that's the way the crowd goes. We go away from those who probably need the most attention and the most love. We move away from them. We dehumanize them more. But Jesus stopped. He chose not to go with the crowd. And imagine what that felt like. Imagine what kind of courage was required to stop while the crowd certainly was prevailing against him to want to just go with the normal flow of you're dumb, you're a burden, and you're cursed. But he stops because Jesus isn't like the crowd. And he said, call him here, which had to be astonishing uh, to the crowd because they didn't even want to give him any attention and now Jesus is bringing him center stage, showing great value in his life. Call him here. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. So now they're playing all nicey-nice with the guy. You see that? Just a second ago, they're telling him to shut up. And now they're like, oh, hey, it's good news for you today. And trying to, trying to make themselves look better, trying to, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And as I mentioned uh, in the last two weeks, actually all weeks that I've been in this series, I just want you again to recognize the great power that happens here and how Jesus in this single question uh, just again takes a stand against the crowd where he is not 
assuming that he knows best uh, for Bart, because that would be a very normal thing to do. Well, of course you want to be healed. Of course you want to see again. But he doesn't assume it. He gives Bart uh, power in asking the question, and he gives him agency in choosing what he wants uh, to ask. It's an incredibly empowering statement. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Now, I put in italicized uh, print the word again, uh, because as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in most translations, uh, they don't include again. In this translation in the New American Standard Bible, they choose to keep it in there because the Greek is unclear. And that's okay. Uh, it, there's room for both because, in a, in a sense, it doesn't matter a lot. He could have been blind since birth, or he may have had an accident or a virus or who knows what. The fact is he's blind. Uh, there's places to go with both and they're okay. Uh, one way, uh, Crosswalker, uh, you know, very first week, he said, you know, and he says, again, it, it's, a, it's a note, uh, it's a metaphor for let me have that childlike vision again to see you with great, great clarity like a child. Hey, that's beautiful. And actually, that's going to fit really well for today. Uh, so that's there, and we need to appreciate that. But don't take the again too literally, because it could go either way. Uh, and that's just a, you know, I'm just giving you that as a nerd note to impress your Bible study friends, uh, to sound impressive. When you talk about the Greek language, you can talk about the aorist tense that gives you the now at the end. And now you can confidently say, well, you know, in the Greek language, the again is questionable. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. And finally, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. And as I mentioned uh, last week, I think, uh, or the week before, they all kind of bleed together for me, um, two miracles happened right there uh, at one moment. One, uh, blind Bart's eyes worked again, and he could actually receive signals uh, from the outside world that were coming in to his brain. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two is that his brain immediately knew what to do uh, with those signals. When people are blind for a period of time and then regain their sight, it takes a very long time for their brains to figure out again what it is that they're seeing, to make sense of all of these signals that are coming into their head. It can literally take years for all of it to come in correctly. And so that's kind of one of those cool things uh, that according to the story, literal or metaphor, whatever, we've got two in one here, physically able to, and now the brain is able to catch on. But then also immediately Bart has this other uh, renewed understanding and a new vision because he says, essentially, I'm going to follow you. He knows what is going to still be with him in Jericho, even though he just got this great gift. He knows how the people have been to him and how hard that would be to stay in Jericho. They were nice for this moment, but what's it going to be when he goes and says to them, hey, you know what? I've been blind for so long. I don't have any skills. I'm going to need your assistance for a while until I figure out what to do with myself. Now, what do you expect their attitude to be toward him? <laughs> Not great. He's looking at Jesus who just gave him vision, and he has a bigger vision now than just getting his sight back. He's like, I'm going to follow this guy. Because this guy is where real vision is coming from. 
And so he's on his way now with the disciples to Jerusalem. And boy, is he going to get a crash course on what it means to follow Jesus. He has no idea uh, what's in store for him. And I wonder how it ended up, too. You know, the thing about this story, and I just barely touched on this the first week, that we sometimes overlook because it sort of goes against uh, what we think about things. By the way, this is where we're headed today. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus 101, what living shalom looks like. Which Jesus are you following is a question we're going to talk about. Which Jesus do you want to follow? And then we're going to talk about Jesus on Jesus, the way, truth, and life, and then uh, we'll end with some realistic expectations. One of the things that's hard for us to realize is that Jesus himself struggled with blindness. That may be news to you, uh, because everything we've heard about Jesus is he came out of the womb, ready to go, uh, ready to take on the world, and he was perfect in every way, just like Mary Poppins. However, he struggled with blindness, not physical blindness, but he struggled with blindness that is caused by a culture that informed him. We talked about some of these things last week. If, if we really believe that Jesus was a human being, and I really believe that Jesus was a human being, that means that just like you and me, he was born into a particular context where all of the voices that are related to the historical context, the geographical context, the religious context, every kind of context you can imagine is shaping him from the moment he took his first breath. The way he sees the world is shaped by the people who are forming him. That's just how human beings work. And that meant that some of the proclivities that existed in that part of the world at that time were put on him. He didn't ask for them, but they were there. We know he was poor. Uh, he was probably made enough to put food on the table most days, but we know his job as a carpenter, he was probably having to, you know, hike a pretty good distance to get work. And there were probably some days he didn't get any work. Uh, so, you know, he has that that is forming his understanding and, and the, the challenge of living in a reality where there is great income disparity when you have little income and he knows that there are people in these big Roman cities not that far away where there's extreme wealth and yet here he is struggling and not just him but his, his, his kin uh, his fellow Jewish people in northern Israel, which was not a wealthy part of Israel. So he's feeling that, and that's shaping his thinking about how we understand wealth in the world and the disparity therein. He's thinking about um, the fact that his own country is ruled by Rome. Uh, this, this promised land that was supposed to be for the Jewish people, it's not their land anymore. Uh, they can go about their religious practices, but at the end of the day, Rome is in charge. And everybody around him has an attitude toward Rome, very naturally. It's completely understandable. They've been oppressed longer than anybody has been alive. There was just a moment in history, a bit before Jesus was born, where there was maybe a chance uh, that things were going to change, and then Rome came in even harder. So everybody around Jesus had this sort of seeming hatred of Rome and looked at them with disdain. And then you've got good old-fashioned uh, patriotism, nationalism within the Jewish people themselves, uh, celebrating that they were God's chosen people. And he heard that from day one, we're the special people. 
And while um, they didn't always feel together because there were different sects within uh, Judaism at that time, still, all together, collectively, we're the ones that God loves the most, which meant that other people who were not Jewish, not so much. And he carried that with him. It was one of those blinders that was on him that we didn't even know was there until it showed up. That one showed up. Uh, deep into his ministry. So he had enough, by the way. His blinders started to come off at some point during his adult life, maybe before, we're not quite sure. But we know that uh, they started to come off because uh, he came alongside his distant cousin, John the Baptist, and was part of that movement and got baptized by John, which is a way of saying, I'm with you, I agree with your movement and all that. And the things that John was saying were in contrast and pushing back on the elite Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So there's already some letting go of blinders and being able to see, not being as blind as he once was, as he's getting greater clarity and challenging some of those original uh, texts that were being uh, worked against him on purity laws and things like this. Jesus is going to start taking issue with that. He gets baptized, and then he goes in on a camping trip for 40 days. Get his head straight. Talk with God a lot. Uh, he fasted, apparently. And when he was at his weakest... That's when we see the tempter come in. And the way the temptations of Christ came were all along cultural lines, three in a row of who are you going to be? How are you going to work with power? What really matters most? And on each thing, Jesus answered the temptation with, I'm going to go this the way of the Spirit of God. I'm not going to go the way of the world. Very important to get that. So the blinders are coming off. Jesus starts his ministry. John is arrested and later killed. Now the whole thing is on Jesus, and away he goes. He expands this thing, broadens this thing. The Spirit of God is clearly at work within him, and Jesus clearly, you know, is the guy that everybody's been hoping for, and he gets exhausted, and he needs a vacation. So he goes outside of Israel a little bit, and he goes up toward the coast, because we all like to go to the coast if we get a chance. <laughs> and so he's up there hanging out in a non-Jewish territory, thinking that he's sort of alone and anonymous, but he wasn't. Somebody got wind that he was there. In particular, a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, got wind that he was there. And it mattered to her, because her child was gravely ill. And she wondered if Jesus would take care of even her kid. And so she kind of interrupts his vacation and asks, would you mind taking a look at my kid? And Jesus' immediate answer is essentially, no. <laughs> no. And the reason for his answer, you're not Jewish. Sorry. I'm really here for the Jews, not you. We look at this with great discomfort. Uh, most uh, evangelical uh, scholars on this try to slough it off, uh, like, oh, he's just kind of kidding around, got a twinkle in his eye and this kind of thing. In fact, just this past Thursday, I was with a group of pastors from the Bay Area, and we got into a discussion about this very scene. And, and one of the persons who was there who's uh, more on that classic side, you know, she was just like, nope, 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 nothing wrong here, nothing to see here. But the language structure here, you want to know what's really going down, is when Jesus is talking to this woman, think of the worst racial epithet you can think of, and he drops that on her. There's no twinkle in the eye that makes that okay. 
what it shows us is the real, deep humanity of Jesus. She, in this exchange, has courage enough to call him on it. And when he's called on it, instead of getting defensive, he recognizes he's had a blinder on all along. This is one of the one of the key moments in Jesus' ministry where he realizes, like he comes to see that God is bigger than just Judaism. He does this in other ways as well, but this is one of those pivotal moments where you see Jesus kind of tripping into awareness. And isn't that the human experience? <laughs> we don't even know where we're blind until we fall over something and realize I had a blinder on and didn't even know it. And what a beautiful example that we have in Jesus, who when he sees this, in his case, it was prejudice against a whole other uh, ethnic group. He just owns it and says, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Man, that's maturity. Well, Jesus also had some issues. Uh, he probably grew up assuming that the people in Jerusalem and the, the leadership of the Jewish faith, you know, were to be celebrated and honored. And yet he found out as long, the longer he lived uh, that there was actually deep corruption among the Jewish elite in Jerusalem that they were padding their own pockets really, really well while the poor continued to suffer. And they would even do things to make the poor grovel just a little bit more uh, to keep them in line. There was a lot that Jesus took issue with, and he spoke about this a lot. But I share this with you because it helps me, at least, to recognize that Jesus as a human being struggled with his own blindness and more and more recognize the blinders that were there and shed them more and more for the Spirit of God and seeing the way that the Spirit of God helped him see. This is a really important question uh, for us today. Um, you know, last week I talked about, or the week before, I can't remember, but we're all Barts, you know? We're all Bart. We all struggle with blindness. We all want to see better. We all want this thing. And there are these moments in our life where we have these aha moments like Bart and his healing. And we recognize, I can see now. And it's like the veil is lifted to a degree. And we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as best we can. But the surprise is, is that when we choose to do that, we find out more areas of blindness that we have. We live in a time right now in American history where it just might be that the Jesus that is being peddled uh, predominantly in the United States might not be the actual Jesus. There's a book that came out about a year ago called After Evangelicalism. It was written by a man named David Gushy. Now, David Gushy is a man of great renown. You might not be familiar with his name, but uh, he used to be president of American Association for Religion, used to be uh, you know, significant scholar and, you know, some of the most celebrated seminaries uh, in the nation. He's written many books and many articles uh, and grew up in a Southern Baptist uh, context and uh, then wrote a book that um, talked about his rethinking uh, their stance on LGBTQ stuff and kind of detailed that out. And as soon as he rolled that out, he immediately was kicked out of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. And as a, an ethicist, Christian ethicist, he was curious about what the phenomenon of American Christianity is dealing with uh, because he recognized that the Jesus that is being peddled 
uh, in a lot of churches for the last 1,500 years or so may not actually look like the religion of Jesus. So he draws a distinction about a religion about Jesus versus the religion of Jesus. And he borrowed from uh, some research from a man named James Dunn, who wrote a book called Jesus on Jesus. How would Jesus define his own religion, his own life? And is there a contrast between that and what we see today? And so in your bulletin, um, I gave you a lot from an, an article that was kind of a lift out from Gushy's book, but I think there's some things here worth considering, and I gave you so much text, not that we're going to plow through it all right now, uh, because I wanted to give you a resource later on to think this through. But on the next slide, uh, we will see these pseudo-Jesuses uh, that Gushy talks about. The first one is going to be a little bit of a head-scratcher for you. And the first pseudo-Jesus is Jesus the Crucified Savior. Now, that one may immediately throw up a red flag in your head because you're thinking of all the letters of Paul. You're thinking of two-thirds of the books in the New Testament that really talk about this crucified Christ that we're supposed to believe in and follow and, and all of this stuff. And that's true. Uh, it's definitely there. And of the, of the pseudo-Jesuses, um, this is the one that is easily proof text and is, is valid, except this. All of Paul's stuff, Paul never met Jesus. He never followed him in the flesh. It was a theological, spiritual experience. But everything that Paul wrote was about religion about Jesus, not necessarily the religion of Jesus. The religion of Jesus is found in the gospel accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's really what we're after. What did the religion look like of Jesus? Another pseudo uh, that's out there is the Hallmark Christmas movie, Jesus. <laughs> uh, this is everybody's favorite boyfriend or bro friend. Always the nice guy, uh, warm, fuzzy hugs uh, for all. Uh, this is the guy, the Jesus, that sit, the bobblehead that sits on your, on your dashboard and has his thumbs up. And uh, this is the, the good buddy, Jesus. Uh, and, you know, that Jesus is around. And is that a part of who Jesus is? Is he loving and graceful? Of course he is. Just like the crucified uh, Jesus, the crucified Savior. Is that a part of it? Well, yeah, of course it's a part of the story. But when you contrast it to the rest of what is being shared and experienced by Jesus, you find out that it's, it just pales in comparison. So the good buddy Jesus, the Hallmark Christmas Jesus movie, uh, just isn't quite there. And then you have the Jesus who wants you to succeed. Uh, this is often the staple at uh, megachurches uh, in the United States. And if you do a little research on megachurches, they are almost always in wealthy white suburbs for a reason. And so the message that attracts uh, those kinds of crowds are a very Americanized, consumeristic uh, kind of message. Uh, how can you become more successful? Let's find out from Jesus as if that was a core mission in Jesus' life. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't want us to flourish? Does that mean that Jesus doesn't want us to have to get up? No, of course not. Of course Jesus wants, of course God wants that for all human beings. But when that becomes the primary message, even if it's just a carrot to get people in the door, it becomes the only message that people really pay attention to. And it's not the message of Jesus, especially since we recognize that he himself lived in poverty, 
that he invited his people to follow him, which led them to a life where they all experienced suffering to some degree for the greater good. That does not smell like whatever Joel Olstein might be peddling out there. Okay? Gushy, in his book, just flat out uh, calls uh, Joel Osteen on this. And does that mean that Joel Osteen has nothing good to say, and that he doesn't have some good messages now and then, and some good illustrations? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the Joel Osteen message, which represents so many other massive, culturally appealing messages, may be devoid of the actual Jesus. When interviewed a number of years ago, Joel Osteen himself was asked, when are you going to get to some of these really important, critical social issues that you would think God would be speaking into? And his response to that question was, I'm going to let other churches deal with that, because that's not the kind of church that we are. Well, to say that that's not the kind of church they are is to say, we're not really a Jesus-following church, because Jesus stepped into that all the time. That's why he got killed. So it raises these questions, and that's why I wanted to ask the question for you, is what compels you into faith? What got you into faith? What keeps you into faith? And what I'm suggesting to you so far is that if the only thing that got you into faith was Jesus the crucified Savior, it's not enough. It's not reflective of the actual Jesus. And if you've settled for the Hallmark Christmas movie Jesus, you're way off. I mean, Jesus is a good buddy and as close as a brother. That's all good, but it's still missing the Jesus on Jesus. And of course, the Jesus who wants you to exceed, God wants you to flourish. But if the success and your personal needs being met materially, health-wise, if that's the primary thing, you're missing the big message of Jesus. And finally, the most dangerous one is the vacant, the vacant Jesus that is fillable with any content we want. I want to talk about our own American history. The Southern Baptist Convention um, started as a break between other Baptists. And the deciding factor came down to a vote among those in leadership with the Southern Baptist Convention. This is back in the 1800s. The question before the body was this, is it okay for missionaries to own slaves? And they decided it was. That faction that said it is okay for missionaries to own slaves became the beginnings of the Southern Baptist Convention which, not surprisingly, was a welcome decision in the Deep South. These are some of the origin-type things that you're able to look at, and we're all guilty of it to some degree, whether we know it or not, but that's an example of hijacking Jesus for your own agenda. By the way, Hitler did the same thing. In the Nazi regime, they, they co-opted the message of Jesus so that people collectively, even Christian people, would somehow <laughs> think that they were doing, that they were on God's side as they were eliminating Jewish people by the millions. Somehow they convinced themselves that this was true. That is the vacant Jesus, fillable with any content we want. And I challenge you to realize that we're all guilty of this on some level. I'll get to more of why I believe that uh, in a bit. So this is, the, these, this is a list of the pseudo-Jesuses. And I'm wondering if any of these or a smattering of any of these is what wooed you into the faith in the first place. My guess is yes. My guess is yes. And it's okay that that's where it starts, but we're not just starting now. So I wonder what 
Jesus according to Jesus looks like. Instead of a religion about Jesus, what is the religion of Jesus? And so we start to see these on the next uh, few slides. So I'm just going to whip through these real quick uh, so we can just kind of see the contrast. So Jesus created and articulated the love command at the highest statement of, as the highest statement of moral obligation. Uh, and the second one, I didn't put the bullet point right, uh, is that Jesus placed priority on the poor. So the first one, love is the most important thing of God and of your neighbor and of yourself. The second is very high priority on the poor. Why the poor? Because they are almost always among the most vulnerable among us. And almost always, because they're the most vulnerable among us, are dehumanized and treated very poorly. Uh, the next, Jesus demonstrated openness to Gentiles, so he was inclusive. It was bigger than just his tribe. He knew that it was bigger than other voices were going to be resonating with the same thing. Jesus included women among his close followers. Do you, do you realize that back then that was massive? Do you realize that still today there are traditions that will not allow women uh, to have the same level of voices uh, in the church? Uh, here in Napa, uh, very quote-unquote successful churches that still keep women as second-class citizens even in the church, even though Jesus demonstrated that that was not what he was about. Jesus demonstrated openness and love to children. This is tough for us to get because we just assume people for all time have always gone goo-goo-ga-ga over kids. Wasn't the case in the ancient world. They kind of wanted them to be out of sight, out of mind. Nuisances. Uh, very different than today. And yet Jesus demonstrated a different sensibility toward that. Jesus relaxed Jewish food laws and related regulations about purity. So if you grew up in a very legalistic household of do's and don'ts, that may not really be reflective of the character and nature of Jesus, who got in trouble for breaking do's and don'ts, including some of the Ten Commandments, especially the healing on the Sabbath or working on the Sabbath. He got in big trouble for that. Uh, Jesus instituted, instituted the Lord's Supper, which is our communal uh, type of event together. On the next slide, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, which was in contrast to the kingdoms that were at play right then. Whenever he talked about the kingdom of God, it was a challenge to the Roman Empire. Whenever he talked about the kingdom of God, it was also a challenge to the Jewish aristocracy who had missed the point of everything. So he's challenging both power centers at the same time, and it got him killed. Jesus healed and exercised demons through the power of the Holy Spirit, so he showed that God was at work in very powerful ways. Jesus understood himself as commissioned by God for ministry, sent by God, his loving Father, uh, anointed by the Spirit, coming as Messiah of Israel, so he was clear on what he was about. And finally, Jesus understood that, contrary to common expectation, his Messiahship meant suffering, rejection, and death, rather than triumph. This is why the disciples never got it. The cultural blinders of the disciples informed them that what we're looking for in the Messiah, the anointed one, is one who's going to come and champion the cause. It's going to displace Rome, and now we're going to be on top. But Jesus tried again and again to say, that thinking is the way the world thinks. You don't, you don't defeat that way. You don't win the world. You don't heal the world with a bigger sword. You might keep the peace for a moment if you have the strongest army or military in the world, but don't, don't mistake <laughs> being able to keep everybody in their place because you're so powerful with actual peace. Jesus knew the only way you get to that actual peace is to be subversive, to do something 
exactly the opposite of showing that kind of power. That's why he subjected himself to the kind of beating and severity, so that everybody would look at this and say, there is nothing right about this. The innocent among us, the most innocent, uh, the best among us is being treated with great injustice. This is flat out wrong. When he chose to allow that to happen and not fight back, it pointed the light back on Rome and the Jewish leaders. It's a very different way of entering into the world, of willing to sacrifice himself for that. This is the Jesus that Jesus would sign off on because it's what he did. It's who he was. When you were first introduced to faith, was this the stuff that was put before you? If you choose to become a Christian, are you game, you know, for this? <laughs> are you cool with this? My hunch is if you grew up in most places in America, if you grew up in an evangelical church or a Catholic church, either way, either way my hunch is that one of the lead-off things had more to do with your eternal security and whether or not you're going to go to heaven than whether or not you're going to change the world with the kingdom of God. Sometimes at great personal cost to yourself. Very different mission. A very different invitation. But this is the Jesus on Jesus. What compels you to faith today? Is it simply because you want to go to heaven? Hey, that's a part of it. No doubt about it. Glory to God. Hallelujah. That is real. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Are you, are you here because uh, you're still in the game because, you know, he's everybody's favorite boyfriend or bro friends? You just want the good buddy? Well, the good buddy's great, and Jesus certainly is closer than a brother. Closer than a brother. He gets you through those tough times. But the mission of Jesus is not to be your bro friend or boyfriend. And hopefully uh, your, your vision isn't the vacant Jesus or the Jesus who wants you to succeed because those so pale in comparison. They are the shallow how versions of Christianity. Hey, that's, that'd be a good book. The shallow how, well, anyway, I digress. <laughs> You know, I want to end with uh, one, one little thing, and this, is, this gets back to the vacant Jesus and how we all need to be cognizant that even though it's easy for us to shake our fingers at the Southern Baptist Convention that's, that started, you know, 150 years ago, and it's easy for us to get mad at Nazism uh, because they so co-opted things and many other historical examples that we could make. But here's the deal. Um, in my blog today, which releases at 12, you can read a full article by a guy named Will Williman, who is a well-known, highly regarded uh, scholar in American Christianity and Christianity in general. And he talks about what it actually looks like, what we're actually called into if we're going to be Jesus followers, uh, people of the faith. And basically says this. He says, if you want to ride with Jesus, if you want to pull a Bart maneuver and actually follow Jesus, buckle up because you're going to be challenged and challenged and challenged and challenged. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. You know, Jesus isn't a jerk. God's not a jerk. He's not just going to keep, you know, going at it all the time and never giving you a rest. But, but if God really is interested in us becoming our true selves, if God is really interested in us being free of the cultural blinders that have been put on us, unbeknownst to us most of the time, 
then when those blinders are taken off, every time they are, even a layer at a time, it makes us very uncomfortable. Why? Because we have been very comfortable with those in place. We've gotten used to living with a certain way of viewing the world that might not actually be the view that God has. And when we come up against those moments, it is very startling and very troubling. I know this from personal experience. It is really hard. And it doesn't matter what the genre of the problem is. Uh, if it's a theological thing, and believe me, uh, you know, a whole lot of fun being a pastor of a church while your faith is going through a crucible, <laughs> and, you're try and you're learning new things that you know are probably going to go against conventional thinking, but they sure are founded in the Jesus on Jesus and, and backed up by tradition, even though they've been covered up. It is very difficult to let go of anchors that you thought were surely it when they weren't the full enchilada. It's hard to let those things go. It's hard to let go things about our worldview, about the way that we've acted in the world, often in ignorance. We want to protect ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves. And deep down, I believe we are. But what if the culture around us has shaped us so much that the way we see other people, the way we speak to other people, the way we hear other people, and the way we treat other people, is more rooted in the culture than it is in the kingdom. And that is a lifelong journey of maturity. And it's hard. I know it's hard on you because I have eyes. And I know that at times when we bring up certain subjects that are highly contentious in our culture, I see your eyes roll. <laughs> I see the steam starting to come out of your ears. <laughs> Here he goes again <laughs> on whatever. And all that tells me is, yeah, yeah, this is hard work. It's hard work. Jesus knew what he was getting into is hard work. But he knew it was for the saving, the making whole of the world. And he knew that the way that he chose to do it was the only way it was actually going to get going and get done. Bart, you know you, you wanted to see. Do you, want to, do you want to follow? You asked for your vision to be restored. You got it. Do you want it to be restored again and again and again as long as you shall live? Because that is the invitation of the real Jesus. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, you are here. You are on the move. You're here to stretch us, love us, comfort us, strengthen us. And I pray right now you'll also speak to us. And I pray you'll help us hear you. Which Jesus, God, have we been riding along with? Help us see. And God, I know it's not binary. I know it's not just one or the other, and we're either jerks or we're not. I know that we probably have a smattering of, 
of a bunch of things. But God, help us see. Help us at least have the courage and the humility to ask the question, have we let any pseudo-Jesus enter into the mix that may actually be detracting from what you're trying to do in us and through us? Congregation, anything in your consciousness popping up? Any questions about some of your earliest motivations of why you got into faith in the first place? Or are there any social issues that you know are just so glaring that God has something to say about that really bug you? That may just be an indication uh, that there's a, there's a Jesus on Jesus we need to learn about. And God, as you have brought to our consciousness uh, hopefully pictures of, of what needs to be rethunk. Now, will you also nudge us right now about what we need to do next? What might our next step be to grow in maturity in the way of the Spirit of God? God, give us courage, give us humility, give us a hunger, a hunger to know the real Jesus, what he was really about, so that we can follow more carefully. It's to that end that we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, which is calling for another kingdom to reign in our midst. And so we choose to make this our prayer as well. Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming today. I hope you had a good experience. Uh, hang out a while, talk amongst yourselves. And uh, my people who are having lunch with me are in my office right across the hall. Thanks for coming.